Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, Episode 5. I'm JP. And I'm Jesse. And today we want to talk about Objective-C interop. Uh, So if you listened to our last episode, Episode 4, we touched on bridging for basically the whole time. And uh, Objective-C interop is uh, really an extension of that topic. Um, So we just figured there was so much to say that we should probably split it up in two episodes. Yeah, and so um, again, we... We kind of uh, touched on this in the last episode, but when we talk about interop, this is a much higher level of working with uh, Swift and Objective-C together, uh, more of like an API level. So think of things like the um, uh, the great API transformation um, for uh, making the Objective-C APIs uh, more Swifty. This is uh, an interop feature, um, not necessarily a bridging feature. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of interop at the uh, runtime level when we talk about, um, you know, in the last episodes in, in bridging, we talked about having Objective-C representable types in Swift, even if, say, from an API level, they're not accessible. Um, sometimes the rep- representation is, and there's all sorts of advantages to that, especially if you're using libraries written in Objective-C. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily going to be the focus of, of this talk uh, or this topic in particular. We're going to focus a little bit more on kind of the higher level aspect and, and from an API level, what it is to interoperate with Swift and Objective-C. Yeah. Uh, a quick note on that, though. Uh, Russ Bishop did have a draft proposal a while back about, uh, or maybe it actually did go into review, about uh, having the Swift standard library actually provide um, a way for clients to provide like an objective C representable type for their Swift types. Yeah. I think Um, that's exactly what the, uh, what the protocol was named either objective C representable or objective C convertible. Something like that. Yeah. And um, if you look at the implementation for Swift core libs, there's a lot of it that implements that under the hood. Um, And so I think it was more just a matter of formalizing that and making it officially available. But like you said, I don't think that was actually ever uh, finalized or maybe it was deferred. Yeah, I think it may have actually been rejected. Uh, but this goes back to what we discussed before, where it's kind of this one-way bridge. And so far, it seems like the overall theme is to discourage bridging Swift into Objective-C and to just only uh, think about moving Objective-C into Swift, bridging and using Objective-C in Swift. Um, And if you think about it, you know, moving forward with Swift becoming the main language, um, you know, accessing Swift from Objective-C is already not that important, but it's going to be less and less important as we move on. Absolutely. Yeah. And even though the Swift core team would never admit to such in so many words, yeah. it's probably a, a factor in their in their discussions of prioritization is saying, well, we could uh, make it easier to use Swift from Objective-C, but that would just really encourage people writing less Swift. And so uh, maybe they're better off focusing their energies on, on the other way around, which is a totally sensible approach. Yeah, definitely. I think anything else would 
not be a good use of time. I mean, especially considering all the things that need to happen for Swift and it's always aggressive roadmap for each release. Exactly. So let's talk about some of the features uh, specifically that are available um, and some of the ways in which uh, this interop functionality is exposed. Um, there's actually a great talk by Nikita Lutsenko uh, from Facebook slash Parse on um, this interoperability between Objective-C and Swift. It's a talk from uh, AltConf 2016, and uh, the video, transcript, and slides are all available uh, at realm.io. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, and so it covers a wide variety of some of the features uh, that are exposed by Objective-C and ROP, some of the um, kind of extension points that the compiler provides uh, for some of the customization. Um, so those cover things like NS Swift name. These are all Objective-C macros, actually, that allow you to refine or modify or hint um, the, the, the interop features of the Swift compiler to... Um, and kind of bypass what the normal behavior would be, right? So NS NS Swift name is a way to say rename a an Objective C um, function to kind of have a swiftier name, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And yeah, you'd only use this for um, functions, and can you use it for property names as well? No, I don't think you can actually do that. I think it's it really is strictly for um, methods yeah. on on types. Right where you can say, um, and, and this was probably more useful prior to the uh, emit needless words um, Swift evolution proposal that uh, I believe Doug Gregor had really done the bulk of the push for. Right, um, where if you wanted to uh, have that nicer, more Swift-like syntax in in a method name, uh, you could provide that via this NS Swift name macro. Um, so another one that's that's available is NS Swift unavailable, um, and this is useful if uh, you there's an API that just doesn't make sense to expose in Swift. Right, right, right. So what that'll do is it'll just straight up hide it um, from from your Swift interface. Yeah, and we actually you can see this in um, UIKit or Foundation in certain places where. Um, certain APIs just don't make sense from Swift or often what you'll see in the Cocoa and Cocoa Touch frameworks is um, you'll have some regular initializer uh, and then also like a class factory method. And they both like do the same thing essentially with the class factory method being there for conciseness uh, to kind of reduce um, some of Objective-C's uh, verbosity. But really, yeah, I think that's probably one of the most common use cases, something like that. Yeah, that's that's actually a great example. Um, there's, you know, along along the same lines, there's this NS refined for Swift in which uh, sometimes you still want to expose the functionality that's in an Objective-C um, selector method, um, but you uh, want to change it enough in a way that it, it's not a, a strict rename. Um, say you want to use, uh, you want to return um, the Swift equivalent of a type rather than um, the Objective-C version of the type, right? So that you can use NS Refined for Swift, which essentially... Um, still preserves the Objective C method, but it um, it puts two underscores in front of it, and I believe it even hides it uh, from the public interface. Um, but it still 
keeps it available in, in the internal interface so that you can then write your own custom wrapper around it. So say you were, uh, you, you had, name me a class from IG list kit that you have in Objective-C and just any class. Yeah, there's a IG list section controller. Right. So say that you wanted to um, further refine that uh, that one of that class's methods. Mm-hmm. Um, you could then have an extension that you write in Swift that you provide with your framework ah. uh, that you then implement your own kind of my custom Swifty name method uh, that just internally calls the double underscored NSRefined for Swift version. And then that gives you a lot more flexibility uh, over the interface that you provide over it. Uh, and even if you wanted to do a little bit more processing, like say, um, you know, do some different validation for it that you wouldn't need to do in Objective C, then then you can you have that extension point. Right. Right. Yeah, that's uh, a really useful feature. Uh, we haven't actually made use of that. Um, I don't know if we actually have a use case for it yet. Um, but yeah, that's something good to keep in mind. Well, yeah, actually, what I'm finding is that a lot of these extension points uh, are um, are less and less useful if you have things like the emit needless words uh, process in the claim porter, which we'll touch on uh, later, um, or if you have some of the other um, more lightweight extension points like just uh, and a swift name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are these are really kind of diving into the weeds, but they are. Uh, available. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the other um, macros that are available there? I think uh, one of the big ones for me uh, that I think makes your Objective-C code more valuable is the nullability annotations uh, and then those lightweight uh, generic annotations that we touched on last episode. I think both of those, while they don't really provide any uh, strict safety in Objective-C, they do provide some uh, this kind of self-documenting aspect for your code where you can mark a property as non-null or nullable. And even though that doesn't really mean that much in Objective-C, um, at least people reading your code later will know uh, more about your intent there. Absolutely. Um, it, plus, it also improves the way in which these APIs are imported into Swift, right? Exactly. Right. Prior to this, uh, the um, implicitly unwrapped um, exclamation mark was all over the place. Right. And so, sorry, I, sh- I should say implicitly unwrapped <laughs> exclamation mark. Explicitly. Right? No, because... No? Um, ah, right. When you explicitly unwrap, something is basically when you take a nullable type and at the call site, you say, uh, I want to explicitly unwrap this. Whereas right. the implicitly unwrapped optional is uh, something that may or may not be optional, um, but the compiler just doesn't have enough information or or right. can't guarantee it. Right, um, right. Yeah, so <laughs> those are confusing. Uh, but yeah, so it, these are, are two annotations that, uh, the great thing about it is that it doesn't just make Swift better, it makes Objective-C better too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, which is, it's interesting, like the only reason these things were added to Objective-C as far as I know is uh, to improve working with Swift. Yeah, but you can imagine a world in which this was done in a way that didn't benefit Objective-C at all. Uh, sure. And yeah. like, for example, if it was done uh, strictly at the um, Swift overlay layer, mm-hmm. uh, where it wouldn't be useful if you're using it from Objective-C and 
if you if you listen to uh, the WWDC talks um, about when about these features when they were introduced, uh, one of the themes there was that um, hey, Objective C isn't going away anytime soon. We're, see, we're still working on it. Right. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's some truth to that, but just the fact that this these features could have been built and were built um, while making Objective C better is a clear indication that. Uh, you know, if it can be done within reason, uh, it will be done. Yeah. Uh, so one aspect of this is uh, with how these these APIs come into Swift is through the Clang importer. Right. And and this brings us to kind of the pieces at play there uh, that, that are mostly responsible for both directions of uh, this interop, right? So uh, the Clang importer being a major piece, the Clang importer... Um, is mostly going from Objective-C to Swift. And then there's this other piece that's the print as obj-c module that lives in the compiler that goes the other way around where it takes Swift and it exposes it to Objective-C. Jesse, you've you've looked at the Clang importer. You've talked about it in some of your talks before. Uh, do you want to give kind of a 10,000-foot overview of, of what role that it plays and what it does? Yeah, so I guess at a high level, if you think about the LLVM workflow where you uh, you have your your language and that gets parsed into an AST and eventually gets lowered into LLVM IR, uh, which is then fed in through the rest of the LLVM pipeline, uh, and, and then you spit out your binaries for uh, whatever platforms, uh, the Clang importer hooks in there um, at that AST level. And so uh, you get the Objective-C APIs um, imported into the process this way. And so then you have like your Swift and your Objective-C ASTs, and that's kind of how things get reconciled at that level because at that point you have a somewhat common, um, yeah, kind of language to to talk between these two things. Uh, and then the rest of the LLVM process will continue with lowering these things into LLVM IR and so on. Yeah, uh, that's that's certainly kind of a lower level role that it plays. But as part of this process where uh, it's, it's kind of consuming the Clang AST for the Objective-C module, or C module for that matter, right? Because the Clang importer also also works with C. It doesn't do anything exposed anyway at the C++ level, but y- you could imagine that once, if Swift ever gains C++ interop, right. um, that uh, some of the logic would definitely live in the Clang importer. There's another kind of side effect that the Clang importer uh, applies, and that's, you're, you're right, that it, it definitely kind of mends the two abstract syntax trees of, of the Clang world and the Swift world together, but it also generates um, the the interface that's used uh, while you're programming uh, so right. that um, you can have things like code completion and um, so that you can use symbols that are, that are translated by this Clang importer, imported by the Clang importer, if you will, from your Swift code. Right, so this is where the uh, the overlays and uh, API notes live, or I'm actually not sure about that. I'm not sure at what level uh, the Apple SDK overlays live at, but okay. I, I know for sure that this is where the logic for um, kind of translating the naming 
uh, sure. from right, from right. Objective C and Swift things uh, lives. It's also where basically all of the macros that we talked about before and a Swift name, Swift unavailable, uh, Swift no throw, no escape, uh, even the nullability and generics uh, annotations. All of that is basically consumed by the Clang importer to, as a hint to say, well, how do you translate this Clang symbol to uh, a, a Swift equivalent type or signature? Sure. And what's really nice about this approach is by having that that Clang importer live at that level that, that Jesse talked about, it means that uh, the same benefits that or all all of the effort that Apple's put in to making its SDKs better to use from Swift also applies to everything else that's written in Objective C, even if it's not written by Apple, which is a great decision. And it's really thanks to that that a lot of the existing third party code, um, whether it's within your own app or uh, all of the Cocobods or Carthage frameworks that you're using, um, it can also benefit from this. Yeah, and I think these are really the core of like bridging this gap and having a cross-language framework. Like if you're a framework author, these are things that you definitely want to adopt if your intent is to have this framework work really well with both languages. So if you have a, a quote, pure Swift framework, you're likely going to hit lots of issues if you want to use that from Objective-C. And so really the method or like the only way forward for a like cross-language framework is writing it in Objective-C and using all these different annotations and interop features to get it to work well in Swift. Yeah, there's it's certainly the direction that all of the tooling and probably the the Apple Swift core team wants to push people in. Sure. Right? right. And and so by making that path easier, uh, it's what it encourages. But um, there's there are ways. They just tend to be a little bit more time consuming and complex. Mm-hmm. If you want implementation to live in Swift and uh, and expose it. So basically, to build a cross-platform framework that's mm-hmm. mostly written in Swift but has an Objective-C interface, it just tends to be a lot harder because uh, it's clear that the the polish and level of maturity of that translation process isn't as refined. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this earlier, you know, at, at the very start of the show that. Um, it's clear that Apple's put a lot more effort in into the direction of using Objective-C from Swift than vice versa. Right, right. So the other side of the translation that exists is the print as C module that lives in the Swift compiler. And, you know, an, an interesting note about the way that's built and probably a reflection of uh, the the effort maturity uh, levels that that went into to building this, uh, rather than translating the Clang AST uh, to the Swift AST like the Clang importer does, the printsopt module really does something a lot simpler where it takes the Swift AST and it will generate via string manipulation an Objective-C header. And so that is generally regarded as slightly less safe and probably a little bit more error prone where when you're doing string manipulation, especially outside of using all of Clang's parser um, and, and code gen tools, it basically means that there's there's a lot more room for error. Um, so if you have this kind of character that um, you know might not be easily represented uh, represented when doing string manipulation, 
uh, like say you had um, uh, the lower than symbol as an operator and you were trying to kind of translate that to to an Objective-C header, well, there's there's a different semantic meaning to that when when it appears in um, in in an Objective-C header, for example. And so it's a little bit more error prone, but on the flip side, it's a lot easier to hack on. Right. Um, and we've actually seen this uh, in action. We've seen the benefits of this where um, Kevin Ballard, uh, who's been hugely um, prominent in the kind of third-party Apple Outsiders contributions to, to Swift, uh, recently got a PR merge that included, um, that, that factored in the unavailable slash deprecated slash availability attributes of Swift types and, and declarations into this print as ob module. So that that kind of allows accessing or, or the way that, uh, that Swift modules and declarations that are exposed to Objective-C, that greatly uh, improves the way that that's done. But just the fact that this is done via, via string manipulation means that um, it's very, uh, very accessible to people who want to hack on this. Do you have anything else to say about the print as option module and maybe the things that it, it does compared to Clang Importer? I don't think so. Do you have anything else? Right. That? No, I'd, I'd just kind of wrap up that yeah. by saying that um, by necessity or by reflection of the effort that's gone into Swift interop from obc, um, its scope is much smaller, right? There's a lot fewer things that you can do uh, calling into Swift from Objective-C, and therefore the fact that print as obc is kind of simpler in its architecture doesn't really matter all that much if it's mostly kind of a, I wouldn't say a temporary thing, but it'll lose importance as time goes on as people write more Swift and less Objective-C. And so... Um, it probably makes sense the way that it was there was architect- architected like that. Right. So uh, these what we see uh, on the user facing side of writing Swift and Objective C code is really like the product of like architectural barriers in a sense in the compiler and how it works. Like in this respect, you're not diving down into like deeper uh, fundamentals of dealing with the AST, you're just doing the simple like service level string manipulation. Yeah, which, you know, it's going a little meta here. It's great to see the levels of abstraction and robustness and hackability. You know, if you think of all those words kind of on a on a plane and like this kind of radial diagram where you get to kind of shift the sliders from one to the other depending on how critical it is or how... Um, how central it is to future features, um, it's interesting to see the way that things are architected within the Swift compiler code base. Yeah, for sure. Right, where you see this printS C module as really an outlier um, yeah, yeah. compared to, to the engineering level of all the other pieces. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so uh, kind of a final thing to discuss here is all the, uh, the different proposals that uh, have come up uh, around improving interop with Objective C, and one of the early ones, uh, in after Swift 2.0 was released, um, this was actually implemented with Swift 2.2, uh, was the ability to reference the Objective C selector of a method. So that's proposal 22, and you know this is something that, like, when I look back, it's it's like such. I mean, at the time, I remember it being so 
weird and so awkward because Swift in Swift, you have first class support for functions and you can just pass them anywhere or set them as variables on something. And so as soon as you had to interact with Objective-C, especially like the target selector APIs in UIKit, for example, you have to revert to this uh, string literal methods. Um, and it was so cumbersome and just really awkward. And this proposal fixed that by basically uh, introducing this new syntax where you have a type-checked expression for selectors. Yeah, exactly. And so you use the the hashtag octothorpe selector um, keyword, or what is it? Is it called a keyword? It's I think it's technically called a directive. Yeah. Um, and then previously with prior to Swift 2.2, uh, you pass in a string for the selector representation. Um, but uh, yeah, like Jesse said, that didn't provide a type safe way to to reference selectors. And what's interesting to me is the difference, um, the difference in usage and uh, and syntax and semantics between uh, a selector directive and passing uh, a function, where um, they actually have similar. They serve similar purposes, right? So, right. like, say you're passing a function reference to uh, map, right? So, to the sequence protocol's map method, uh, you can pass in the the function directly, even if this function is uh, statically dispatched, even if it's private or file private, uh, even if it's not representable by the Objective C runtime. You you can pass functions, and you can even pass um, locally declared functions. So, mm-hmm. like a, f- a temporary function within a function. Right, right. Um, and these are all things that you can't do uh, f- with the uh, selector directive. But I think that there is a good reason here, and and I think that let's if, if we unpack it a bit, that what you pass into the selector directive has to be a dynamically dispatched, Objective C representable public uh, function, essentially. And that the fact that the selector directive exists rather than it being, say, um, just uh, syntax sugar, right? Where you you can infer that uh, if you're passing uh, a function reference to, say, um, a UI kit method, uh, like the target action pattern, that uh, it would just implicitly require that it it have all the constraints that uh, require it to be an Objective-C selector. I, I think that by having an explicit selector there probably simplifies and isolates some of the code that the Swift compiler has uh, w- where you can pass just any function by reference versus requiring it to be obviously representable, public, right. uh, dynamically dispatched. Right, right. It, it is kind of a shame that... Uh, like uh, what I'd love to see, and maybe it's just not worth um, the investment for the temporary and short-lived advantage that it would provide. But if the Swift overlays to UIKit and to Cocoa Touch and, and to Cocoa frameworks allowed basically at a shim layer passing in references to functions not considering without these constraints, and it would kind of internally. Uh, represent it in a way that's dynamically dispatchable. 
Right. Because I think that there's no technical limitation for any of this, and it would have, it basically would have allowed Swift the language to abstract away the difference between a selector and a function reference. Right, right. But I don't know, maybe, maybe you can think of a way or a reason why that's not possible, or maybe the investment just would have been too high for, for the gains. But it seems that that would have been a nice area to um, slightly refine the, the usage here. Well, if uh, wouldn't generics mess this up? If you have a generic function, especially if it's complex, multiple generic parameters, that would be difficult to... You're probably right. Interpret, right? But if you were to pass a generic function by reference to, um, say, you know, a sequence which is also which is also generic on its type alias of, of its element type, yeah. you need to do a specialization thunk there. The compiler needs to do a specializa- specialization thunk there mm-hmm. that would be required uh, either way. Right. So I'm. Right. It, it you you might be right, but I I can't think of a way in which that would, uh, pr- that would introduce new constraints that we don't already have. Right. Well, in that scenario though, the sequence, uh, it has those generic constraints like that can be resolved, right? But in Objective C. There's very little type information, so yeah. it might be hard to. Yeah, you might yeah. be right. Yeah. Um, you might be onto something there. Um, we should have uh, Chris Eidhoff on to discuss this because uh, uh, one of his talks recently, he was talking about re-implementing in a sort descriptor. Uh, well, this is actually like one of his live coding talks that uh, it was at Swift Summit this year. And there he he basically, he re-implements a lot of in a sort descriptor functionality uh, using generics. Um, and it's basically just entirely, um, it's, it's a very functional approach using just generic functions essentially uh, to re-implement that behavior in what becomes a very dynamic way. And if you follow anything that Chris Eidhoff has been like working on or writing about, one of the things he often discusses is how uh, Swift is incredibly dynamic, and one thing that comes up in these discussions, and people tend to not think of Swift as dynamic because it doesn't have the dynamic Objective-C runtime, and that's usually what we associate with dynamism. And it's interesting to uh, to see this re-implemented. So if you don't know, like NS sort descriptor is heavily reliant on the Objective-C runtime for, you know, because you can just pass it key paths and all, all of these things to um, to sort based on. And, and the Objective-C runtime will actually send messages to those objects based off of those selectors constructed by strings, essentially. Exactly. Um, to to do that dynamically, but right. you're absolutely right. There's there's ways to re-implement that. Right, and so it'd be, so what, where I was going with this is like, it would be interesting to see, you know, this is where we get to that point where we have this kind of awkward relationship with UIKit, and it'd be interesting to see like a swift implementation of UIKit. The target selector pattern, which is really what this is accommodating, is something that's hugely powerful in Objective-C. It allows you to write dynamic code so easily. And this is one thing Brent Simmons always talks about, about how much he loves Objective-C and how this was like such a big deal uh, back in the day, um, 
when the the Mac platform started taking off and like how much easier it was to build apps because of this. And so, yeah, it would be interesting to see, like, it's an interesting discussion and probably for another episode to uh, think about how we would implement target selector or target action methods in UIKit with Pure Swift. Right. Well, this is where um, there's a distinction to be made between between interfaces and implementations. Right. Where um, the amount of code and the amount of battle-tested code that uh, is reliable because it it has been iterated on even in small in small bits that's in UIKit and the Cocoa frameworks uh, over the course of decade plus. You know, in the case of AppKit, you know, multiple decades. It really is acts as a deterrent to re-implement something in Swift. But since this is the Objective C interop episode, you know, there's something to be said about um, making the overlays a little bit thicker and a little bit smarter. Um, where the Swift overlays that that currently do a lot of the translation uh, between using the Cocoa frameworks from Swift and the Objective C implementations, you can imagine a world in which we add in a few more smarts in there. Where you you have, for example, um, you abstract away this uh, selector directive concept, where you take it completely out of the language and you make it only an internal only um, concept that that is right. kind of generated on demand. And you can imagine the same thing when Swift 4 comes around and we have amazing reflection capabilities and, and a few more dynamic features that those can be exposed and added on to UIKit at that overlay layer right. or right. whatever that layer ends up being called when it's a bit more than just renaming. Um, and, and type changes when, when there's additional validation. And this is something that as library authors and as app developers, we can do ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the way that Realm is implemented, there's Realm Objective-C, that's where the bulk of the implementation lives, Objective-C API, but the, the macros that exist like NS Swift name and unavailable and refined for Swift, et cetera, aren't enough to provide a fully Swifty API. And that's where Realm Swift is actually just another framework that imports Realm Objective-C and wraps everything to provide the Swiftiest API possible. And there's, of course, a few more constraints there, but we can get a really long way towards um, a very Swifty interface for things like UIKit that do away with target action, that do away with passing selector directives, um, or an sort descriptor that uses a type safe implementation or type safe interface mm-hmm. to the same old battle tested uh, and hardened implementation that's still in Objective C, and that's where I think the most pragmatic direction forward is. Sure. Yeah. So perhaps in the future, what we'll see is not complete rewrites of Cocoa and Cocoa Touch frameworks, but maybe Apple provided like Swift wrappers around these where. The community, in a lot of ways, is creating different frameworks that wrap UIKit and other frameworks to uh, to expose like a nicer Swift API. But maybe Apple will actually start doing this. Well, I'd argue that they're that they've started long ago, actually. And you look at the foundation data types, right? Oh, so sure. data to NS data, yeah, and yeah. Uh, what are some other things that that come to mind? Uh, date and NS date. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, this this concept uh, 
Apple's been applying already for over a year if and, and longer if you consider the Swift overlays, which are also a step in that direction. And some of the, um, uh, like for example, nullability annotations, these are things that Apple was using themselves for, they were basically dogfooding it in their own frameworks before they exposed it as officially supported ways for people to do that with their own code. Mm-hmm. And so did they have a long way to go? Yes, uh, where, yeah, that's exactly you know the direction that we're talking about with making APIs swiftier, but they're already well underway. And um, even though people might not necessarily notice it, I think a lot of effort has gone into uh, just making Objective C interop uh, a lot a lot better in Swift. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, I guess uh, there are two other minor proposals that uh, kind of piggybacked on this initial one. Um, so once we could reference these selectors, um, the Objective-C selectors, uh, the community noticed uh, a few flaws where uh, this didn't apply to property getters and setters or Objective-C key paths for KVO and KVC. Um, and so there are follow-up proposals that added these two features uh to that selector uh, syntax. And so, or I guess they actually added their own. So there's the uh, like hash Octothorpe key path. Uh, I guess that would also be a directive like the selector directive. Uh, And then uh, the property selector, property getters and setters, uh, which is actually tacked on to that existing uh, selector uh, syntax where you can specify like a getter or setter for a property. So those are just kind of extensions that even further this change. Yeah, what's interesting about that um, proposal was that it basically added a feature to using Objective-C from Swift that isn't available if you're just using Swift, right? right? Like, wouldn't it be great if, um, because essentially what this provides is um, is a compile time reflection mechanism where you, right. can, you can refer to um, the the semantic representation of um, part of your declarations. So like properties on a class, uh, statically at compile time. And this is a thing that Swift doesn't even have on its own. Right. Um, so that's actually kind of a shame where the selector directive um, basically is equivalent to passing a function by reference. You can't do that with properties or, or most other types of declarations. Well, you can do it with types. Yeah. Right. Where you pass in person dot self. Right. Um, and you can do it with functions, but strangely enough, you can't do it with uh, properties or, or members. Right. Right. Um, so that's kind of interesting because that's a feature that would be uh, very useful for building basically a Swift equivalent uh, and a compile time safe um, equivalent to a lot of the features that we currently use uh, dynamic runtime introspection to build. Mm-hmm. But at compile time, it would have been great if that had been part of this same proposal. But yet again, you know, feature creep and you don't want to you don't want to delay things by too much uh, and have tons of conversation in terms of how to implement a new feature for Swift. But it is one of those areas that uh, um, that's kind of a blind spot right now in 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 the compile time reflection, if you will. Right. Although with properties, Swift does have the built-in will set, did set 
functionality if you override the getters and setters. And so you can kind of derive that same functionality in some ways, but... In in very narrow use cases, yes. Right. But if you look at the proposal um, uh, for, for that um, referencing Objective-C property selectors, mm-hmm. one of the examples that it showcases is um, having a type-safe way to refer to a property in, say, a stringly typed database query for SQLite. Right. 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 And that's exactly the kind of thing that um, you, you would want to do. Same thing for, say, like uh, automatic implicit JSON serialization or... Um, yeah, that or, would be nice. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. the... That's what I mean by it would have been great if this had been extended uh, to right. Swift itself. And that's one of the things that I'm hoping that the Swift 4 Phase 2 uh, discussions around metaprogramming and reflection touch on and, and hopefully complete um, this step in obviously the right direction. Right, right. Well, we should probably uh, wrap up here. I agree. Um, Jesse, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Jesse underscore Squires. And you can find me on Twitter at, at SimJP. Thanks for listening.